0: So this evening is, of course, the last in the series I've been doing on the foundations of mindfulness, because we're up to the fourth one, which is the last one. And for me, it's the most profound and the most interesting of this set of teachings. It's Dhamma nupassana, mindfulness of Dhammas. And what's happening in this progression of teachings is they're getting more and more subtle. More and more refined. First foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. You know, somewhat gross in some ways in the sense of large and solid. We can, hopefully, most of us find the body. Um, and then more subtle, vedana, the feeling tone. Once you tune into it, it's actually pretty accessible, but still um, a more subtle thing to pay attention to. And then mindfulness of mind, citta nupasana. This is, again, a radical turning where we start to look at the contents of the mind itself rather than just the story in the mind, the type of um, experience we're having in the mind. And there's a strong connection between the third and the fourth foundation. But in the third foundation, we're invited just to simply know are these qualities present or not present? A very kind of equanimous... um, non-judgmental way of looking at and understanding the mind whether they're wholesome or unwholesome qualities just is the mind affected by them or not in the fourth foundation we're asked we're invited a little deeper into the experience to understand the context within which these mind states these experiences Are happening. So we look a little more deeply. And again, this emphasis that is throughout the sutta, but really emphasized here, the conditioned nature of these experiences that we have. And the thrust of it is to create the conditions to allow the wholesome experiences to increase and to diminish the conditions for the unwholesome or unskillful or painful experiences, and all through it to just keep turning the mind to freedom, to release, to letting go. And it's quite a complicated set of teachings, not something that you kind of just decide to do, or if, you, if you're successful at that, please let me know. I want to figure that out. But what happens is as we kind of get steeped in dhamma, awareness, Dharma teaching, and mindfulness refine our attention, we start to notice these principles very naturally. This is something that just easily can develop in practice. The sort of the the context within which things are their conditioned nature, just kind of seeing uh, these causal sequences again and again in our mind and our experience, both here in formal practice, but even in our lives, it can be a very helpful way to pay attention. And I think I've said that the Buddha said that any and each of the foundations in and of themselves can be liberating, could take each one of them Penetrated enough, the mind could become liberated. But the other foundations also develop different qualities, particularly, say, concentration, um, You know, wise relationship to the body, inner and outer actions, um, all of those kind of um, uh, complicated things. The thrust in this particular section is always to freedom, reducing hindrances, letting the mind come to awakening. It's not that this section isn't the one that necessarily deepens the concentration aspect of our experience, but it's really about liberation. So a retreat like this is actually a great place to begin to explore this teaching and what what it's pointing to. But I also understand that hearing talks about somewhat complicated things in a retreat environment isn't necessarily the best way to learn something like this, certainly not expecting you to memorize the lists that are covered here, all the different nuances of the practice. Um, Just take in what's helpful, what resonates with you. And if it seems too complicated, of course, just let it go. But I hope I can point to the fact that you're already doing this. You perhaps just didn't have a name for it as practicing the fourth foundation, that we're doing it more than we think, because it really is Anytime we bring skillfulness and a Dhamma understanding to our experience, this is what we're doing. And it's kind of what we as teachers try to do in interviews, help you understand, frame, contextualize your experience in a Dhamma understanding. This is really the thrust of the fourth foundation. And so in understanding it can realize the skillful means that are being pointed to. And notice how you're already perhaps doing it at different times in your practice. So the, the, the foundation is called mindfulness of dhammas, sometimes translated as mind object, so I don't think it's a, a great translation, dhamma Nupassana. We've talked about this word dhamma, so I think you you know to some extent that it has many different meanings. It can mean the teachings of the Buddha, it can mean the truth of things, the way things are, kind of reality in an in a, a, a objective way, in a clear seeing way, seeing with wisdom. But I think I've also said it means a thing. This is a dhamma, the bench is a dhamma, the bell is a dhamma. So it has this wide range of meanings. And because this, the section in the sutta is also quite complex, it's led to a lot of differing interpretations about what we're actually being invited to do here. And I remember a guy telling me once at a three-month retreat having a teacher meeting where the teachers were discussing, what what does it actually mean? What's being, What are we supposed to do here? And he said after a long discussion, they could kind of agree on what was being pointed to here. So again, don't expect you to kind of get it immediately. It's taken me a long time to really appreciate the subtlety and the power of what the Buddha is pointing to in this section of the sutta. And I actually like a, a, a way of looking at it that another teacher, Taraniya Nia, um, uses for the fourth foundation. She calls it seeing the dhamma in the dhammas. And it basically means seeing the dhamma in everything. Seeing Dhamma principles, bringing Dhamma principles or understanding to all of our experience, mind and body, inner and outer. So that's the one that I like, seeing the Dhamma in the dhammas. So in this section, it's a, another set of lists. I think we've said about how much the Buddha liked lists. He invites us to contemplate mind objects in terms of the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the Six Sense Bases, The Seven Factors of Enlightenment, and The Four Noble Truths. It's kind of like the biggest hits of the Buddha, you know, the top five or so tunes of Buddhist teaching. What's interesting, though, is each of these are given as practices. They're not just lists to memorize, nice things to know about. They're practices, Excuse me. and each one has a slightly different practice. To actually bring it into experience. And it, you can see how there's an overlap and how it develops out of the other foundations, but here the real difference is what we do with experience, how we understand it. And actually, again, inviting us into the skillful use of thought, of thinking. We've said again and again, you know, it's not that thinking is bad or wrong or a problem, get rid of it, but come to a wise relationship to thinking, begin to understand the nature of thinking. And once the mind becomes somewhat trained, thinking and thoughts can become our ally in the path because we need to use it for wisdom. So skillful use of thought, reflective thought, and the difference between that and say, papancha is that reflective thought can lead us to insight. In reflective thinking, we're invited to contemplate our experience to more deeply understand it. Not to spin a story about it, but to actually get closer to it and understand, particularly, why we suffer and where freedom is to be found. And so to do this, we're actually, um, again and again, the, the pointing to is what I call the three moments We talk a lot about the present moment, you know, we need to be present to win kind of thing, that this is where it's all happening, that's totally true. But in this sutta, there's a little bit of reflectivity, like what just happened? A little bit of turning in that direction and then making a wise response to that and then seeing what gets developed, what unfolds out of that. So we kind of expand the field of mindfulness a little. Sometimes we're doing what I call post-mortem mindfulness. It's like, oh, what was I lost in there? What was going on? And, And bringing some wisdom, some understanding to it. And then hopefully responding skillfully, wise intention, to see if the next moment can actually be one of less suffering, less clinging, less attachment. So it begins with our old friends, the hindrances. Again, as practices, recognizing that the hindrances are just that. They're obscurations to clear seeing, they're hindrances. And the thrust of the teaching or the practice is to diminish them, is to look at how they get created and to see what we can learn from that to work with them skillfully. In the section of the sutta, it's very similar to the third foundation. We're just asked to know, is is the hindrance present or not present? That sort of objective, um, non-judgmental assessment. This is present or not present. So for desire, aversion, delusion, um, all of the hindrances. But then the, the next steps are to understand how these states arise and what causes them to cease, what causes them to diminish or be abandoned. So In the section, you know, there's a repetition with each of the five hindrances. The first one is sensual desire. So we're asked to see, is there sensual desire or no sensual desire? But then the meditator understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. Have you got that? Do I need to repeat that? It's a little complicated um, linguistically. How there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, meaning it wasn't there and it arises. How there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, meaning it's here and we let it go. The text says abandon, you could say um, to drop, to accept, to not get caught in that sensual desire. But this is the important one. How there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire. So we've worked with it, sensual desire is present, we've seen it, we've we've worked with it skillfully. But the wisdom is, what were those conditions? What was I paying attention to? What was I dwelling on? What was the experience of mind and body that was in allowing that experience to fulfill to fill, you know, be predominant in experience? and how to actually be more skillful in the future. This is the learning. And this um, way of speaking, perhaps it's a little familiar to, it's the language of the four wise efforts, which is one of the path factors, where we again, the practice is to, and I used all A's for these so that maybe you can remember them, to avoid, abandon, arouse, and um, advance. So we avoid and then ab- abandon, the unskillful experiences states of mind, and we arouse and advance or develop the skillful or wholesome states of mind. This is a thrust of the four wise efforts, and this is um, threaded through the, the way the Buddha languages the teachings in this section. So recognizing desire is present is the field of the third foundation. Recognizing it as a hindrance and beginning to understand the causes for its it to arise and all the other hindrances, and what causes it to pass away, how we can actually abandon, avoid, let go of, not be so caught up in a particular hindrance, and the future non-arising. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So again, you may have been doing this to some extent already. Anytime you worked skillfully with a hindrance. When you named it as sense desire, wanting, grasping. When you named pushing away, aversion, ill will, this is the field of the fourth foundation. And then when you understood the conditions for that arising and and learnt from that experience, all we're doing here is learning from everything that we're experiencing, this is the fourth foundation. And I just find adding that conceptualization around those experiences, it's like when I talked about Vedana and the, the feeling tone, just saying, oh, this is pleasant, that's why I like it, or unpleasant, that's why I'm pushing it away, not liking it. Same here to say, oh, this is sense desire and it's a hindrance, or this is restlessness, it's a hindrance, really helps us kind of get certainly clearer about what's happening. But that very clarity of mindfulness releases it a little. We're not quite as stuck in it. And so we consider, oh, that's why I'm so disturbed or trapped or why this feels so sticky. It's a hindrance. And I see these conditions that were um, causing this to arise in experience. So again, it's just this tracking of experience, bringing our wisdom, our clear seeing to what's happening. Um, This is the field of the fourth foundation. So just to talk particularly about the hindrances, because they're so familiar for us, um, a little while ago, I got some news about a family member and what he was doing and saying that was kind of disturbing to me. And I didn't feel it was right or justified. I could see the harm that would be caused if he continued to do that. I was irritated, frustrated by the experience because I wasn't able to really impact it, my families in Australia. And so I sat that morning with having heard that news, that little piece of information. And I could feel the response in the body, you know, the tightness in the face, the jaw, the eyes would kind of get tight as I, those thoughts ran through my mind, replaying the information that I'd heard. I'd feel a contraction in the body. And then I realized that's really suffering. You know, I'm, I'm, maintaining this this set of thoughts that I can't do anything about. You know, he's 8,000 miles away. I'm not going to be in contact with him anytime soon. So I opened to it and just allowed the body to breathe a little more naturally, a little more easily, calmed the body. And I saw how the thoughts just dissipated. They didn't have the traction when I actually consciously didn't feed them. And then, of course, a new string would start up and I'd feel all of the contraction starting to happen again. But as I reflected and just was curious about what was happening, I saw how I was elaborating on the story, right? You know, I got this little snippet of information and I told this whole story about how he was bad and wrong and he was saying this and doing that. And I realized that it was all mind-made. I didn't have any idea what this person's experience was. I didn't really even actually know what he did say or do. This is all, you know, second, third hand from other people. Um, I realized it was just papuntia, really. I, I I like this quote from Marcus Aurelius, the Roman philosopher and emperor. He said, everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. And so we really have to see what we're doing with our thoughts, solidifying something that actually causes suffering. And I saw how if I continued to believe those thoughts, next time I saw this person, it would totally color how I viewed them. I would feel alienated and distant, even though I couldn't know for 100% that this is what he'd said or done. It was all just hearsay. So we need to bring all of our wisdom to bear when these kind of hindrances are up. Same for the, you know, garden the, the kind of hindrance of sleepiness. Again, in the beginning of the retreat, probably can still happen if you don't get a good night's sleep or different conditions. Just garden variety, we're tired, we're exhausted, sloth and torpor, mental, physical tiredness. But there are three main kinds of sleepiness. There's that kind, I call it garden variety sleepiness, Dullness. Then there's sinking mind, which is when we're actually fairly calm and concentrated, but there's not enough interest or energy, and the mind just kind of collapses. It can either go kind of go out like a light or just fuzz out in a almost pleasant way, but then it usually becomes unpleasant into spaciness. We're just not quite connected enough. And then there's sleepiness as a defense mechanism. Something is tickling us there in left field, that's right field, left field. Um, And we're just like, no, I don't want to go there. And you you know that one, right? I just don't want to feel that. And so we space out, we tune out, we move into that dullness. Starting to recognize these different kinds of sleepiness. What are the conditions? Is it that you had a sleepless night? Or is it this imbalance of mind, sinking mind? Or is there some kind of tuning out that's happening that's not wanting to be present? Again, not to do, you know, that you have to figure all this out, but we can intuit more than we sometimes give ourselves credit for in this kind of field. And actually, the interesting thing is the same kind of antidotes work for all of them. Doesn't really matter what kind it is. We just need to to bring more interest, more energy, more liveliness to the meditation. And then, just to say a little bit about doubt, because it's really the most challenging hindrance, kind of pulls the rug out from under us, um, and it's like delusion. We we don't recognize it where we're in it, we think we're telling ourselves the truth of things. I, Greg talked this morning about seeing who wants to belong to the I'm not very good at this club. That's doubt, you know, that that we don't think we can do this. We don't know what we're doing. And when we're in that mind state, everything's impossible. How do we move forward? Just to recognize and see how a moment of fear or uncertainty, if the mind latches onto it and believes it, can spiral out into doubt and really spin us out for hours, if not days, of inability to actually come back into connection. So we need to challenge or especially recognize those thoughts. It's so powerful to actually name them as doubt. And then even more powerful to recognize that they're a hindrance, that actually this is Mara, hindering my capacity to be present. I've seen the light bulb go on with people when I've just said, do you realize that's just doubt? And they're like, oh, you're right. That's just, and it just energizes the practice again because we're not believing those stories. You know, we think that there's something wrong with me, but it's just this conditioned habit of mind, of doubt. So naming it as doubt, knowing it's a hindrance. And could say a lot more about each of these, but just to give you a taste of of what's being pointed to here. So the next in this list is the aggregates. Guy gave a whole talk about the aggregates. These are the components or aspects of our experience of mind and body that we tend to cling to and identify with. We take them as I, me, and mine. And therefore, they cause suffering, panchupadanakanda, the five aggregates of clinging, we create a sense of self about them. The trick around them is they're only a problem when we do that. In and of themselves, they're just the aggregates. The Buddha has had aggregates. The arahants have aggregates. We all have aggregates. It's when we cling to them that they become uh, a source of suffering. So the whole thrust of the practice is to see them as these conditioned arisings. They arise and they pass away. If we hold on to them we will suffer. It's like, you know, if the trees try to hold on to the leaves that are dying. That's not healthy for the leaves They're for the trees. That has to be let go of. And the same with this. So the practice is to see that these these khandas of form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness all arise and pass according to their conditioned nature there's nothing solid there to cling to because if we cling we will suffer they don't they don't have the capacity to bring lasting happiness in the way we would like them to do so here a direct pointing to look at our experience through the lens of the aggregates see their conditioned nature and see what the mind, how the the tendency of the mind to cling, to appropriate, to identify, and what it's like when we don't do that, when we actually let go. And the thrust of the next section is the six sense spaces, a little similar in a way to the aggregates, just a different framework or different lens for looking at this experience of mind and body. So the six sense spaces, the five physical ones, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then the mind as the sixth sense door. So this is how we experience the world through these six senses. And it's a huge part of our mindfulness practice, right, of starting to pay attention in a more detailed and nuanced way. What's happening at all of these sense doors? You could, this is really... Um, the field of our mindfulness practice i can remember joseph saying it's really simple there's only these things six things happening that's all you have to pay attention to but of course that's our whole world right we create the world through and our experience of the world through these six sense doors so the practice here what we're uh, it, what's in the text is the practitioner understands, and it goes through all six sensors in the same formulation. I'll just use the first one. The practitioner understands the eye, understands forms, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. So I form the fetter that arises. So sound, hearing the fetter that arises, the ear and hearing the fetter that arises. So there's different interpretations of what is meant by the fetter in this particular um, section. But the simplest one, I think the one that's most relevant to us as practitioners, is the calaces, greed, aversion, delusion, basically how we get caught, how we attach, push away, or space out around the experience of the six sense stores. So what's interesting is the six sense stores in and of themselves are just neutral. The eye seeing, the ear hears, What we really need, we need to understand that as a process, a conditioned process. But the important thing is understanding the fetter that arises dependent on both. Basically how we get caught again in this now through the lens of the six sense doors. Because the object isn't a problem. The eye isn't a problem. The eye is just doing its job. The problem is, the suffering is the craving, the clinging, the fetter, the aversion, the attachment. That's what the problem is. But we start with understanding the eye as a sense organ. And this is, in some ways, a radical thing to do. We can be so lost in the world of visual forms, and we're such a visual species much more so than many animals where their other senses are alive. Human beings, because we do so much reading and media, all of that, we're really attuned, and we're upright with our eyes ahead, um, really attuned to seeing. But we get lost in that, right? We get lost in the visual field. And it's kind of like we're back in here, you know, The Wizard of Oz, or if you've seen that Pixar movie, Inside Out, you know, the little control panel with the different emotions... Controlling the and f- what what we look at, what we see, looking out through the eyes as the telescope onto the world, um, and it 's like the world is out there, the world is separate and out there, and Sharon Salzberg talks about this. You know, if you exaggerate or really get a feeling of what's happening through the eye door, you know those cartoon characters where the eyes go out on springs, like boing. It was at Foghorn, Leghorn, that cartoon rooster, and he'd see the hen walking by and he went boing. You know, there's not much here to do that to, but do you notice how that happens? What was your reaction when you saw, what was it, hot chocolate chai out in the dining room? Like, even if you didn't want any, you know, the eye still goes, oh, that sounds good. You see that sign. It's just like, what is that? We want it. That going out, looking for that sense pleasure, that hit, this is what happens. We can get entranced by forms. And again, not to, you know, enjoy beauty. Beauty is wonderful. But a, a few years ago, we traveled in Italy um, which is a you know, beautiful country and culture to explore. Really had a great time there. But after a while, it's like, oh, no, not another Gothic cathedral. Oh, not another Renaissance masterpiece. You know How many can you actually look at and still be present for them? You're like you're <laughs> rushing through the, if, if what's that beautiful music, Uffizi? Uffizi. And after a while, it's like blur, right? You just can't take it in, can't take it in. And there's whole industries about seeing, right? The whole travel industry, that book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. You know, this sense that if you, you know, so what, a thousand places you have to see before you, now as a whole industry, now this woman, I think it's a woman, she's written, a thousand things you have to eat before you die. It's like, there's no end. Joseph says, where is the end of seeing? If, you, if you're seduced by that, it's endless, right? Maybe you're making your list a 1,000 places to sit at IMS, you know, the Bodhi House and upstairs and the dining room. Not going to make a bestseller list, I'm sure, but... We can see how if we're just feeding off the scent stores, it's endless, right? Bucket lists of what I need to see or do or taste. And to see the, the refuge or the, the peace that comes when we don't actually... Um, are absorbed in that way. I mean, I'm always curious when people race out to see the latest movie, you know, and there's lines for them. And my sense is the movie isn't going to change. You know, whether you see it today or a month from now, your experience will be the same. Why do you have to rush out and see it? But this wanting to see and wanting to know, wanting to do, it's, it's so driven. Just a, a bit of light entertainment on seeing. Dave Barry, one of my favorite humorous writers, writers, this is a section where he starts by saying, he lives in Miami, Florida, where he, he's sure they're the worst drivers on earth, but he said, he'd seen bad drivers before, but nevertheless, I was surprised by the driver on the interstate the other night. I heard him before I saw him because his car had one of those extremely powerful sound systems in which the bass notes sound like nuclear devices being detonated in rhythm. So I looked in the mirror and saw a large convertible with the top down overtaking me at maybe 600 miles per hour. I would have tried to get out of his path, but there was no way to know what his path was since he was weaving back and forth across five lanes. Fortunately, he missed me, and as he went past, I got a clear view of why he was driving so erratically. He was watching a music video. He was watching it on a video screen that had been installed where the sun visor usually goes, right in front of his face, blocking his view of the road. I don't want to sound like an old FUD, but this seemed to me just a tad hazardous. I distinctly recall learning in driver's education class that to operate a car, you need to be able to see where the car is going in case the need arises to steer. And I just thought it's such a great example of this insatiable wanting to see that, but not this, you know, what he needed to see, which was the road and the other cars. And the eye door especially has become this avenue for escapism, you know, take it with you on your phone or your tablet or, you know, your little mini device that, you know, you I mean the ads they say is a great thing. Oh you're watching it here and then you watch it there and then you watch and you go into another room and you watch it there and then you go into your car and you watch it there and you get on the train and you watch it It, that's perfection, right? To be able to just have this obsession. And what happens is we actually lose ourselves in all of that seeing and hearing and tasting. I love this poem by Mary Oliver, The Sun. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening relaxed and easy floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea and is gone and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils. Say on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy, for power, for things. Just pointing to how when we're present, it just fills us. There's an enoughness, a beauty to that. And when we're lost, we're not there to see that, to experience that, so. So we practice with these sense doors. Practice knowing them, understanding them. It's why we often talk about what we call guarding the sense doors here, not in a way of rejecting the world, um, but not going crazy for the world, not thinking that out there somewhere is the hit of pleasure that's going to make everything okay. So a sense of a little withdrawing from the busyness of looking around, um, because we so easily get drawn into judgment and comparing in doing that, and just a more inward turning. So the same formulation is used for the sense doors where we're asked to notice the arising of an unarisen fetter, the abandoning of an arisen fetter, and the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. Again, a little complicated, but basically seeing how we get caught, letting go, and learning from that. Seeing how we can actually train the mind and heart to be content in its present moment experience, without reaching out there. And so we can use this here, you know, guarding the sense doors, wherever you're somewhere where there's a lot of visual information. You know, the dining room, we keep talking about how helpful it is to practice there. Just to notice seeing as you're going through the food line, to notice reaching or smelling or tasting. All of this helps us understand this as practice. And then the next in the list is the seven factors of enlightenment. Again, it's an interesting progression here. These are positive mental factors. Guy gave a whole talk about them. So he was asked to develop them, to recognize them and develop them. So, uh, you know... Talked about the seven mindfulnesses of balancing um, factor, and then three arousing factors or energizing factors of investigation, energy and joy or pity, and then the calming factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Same formulation goes through uh, with each ones that we cultivate them at first knowing are they present or not present. so just like the formulation. Of the third foundation, for each of the factors, are they present or not present? But then, because they're positive factors, were asked to in, were invited to notice the arising of unarisen mindfulness, and how, unar- how arisen mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development. So I think this is um, interesting. These last two, because people will always ask or be confused by, I want to figure out, why do I get lost? You know, I'm mindful, I'm mindful, I'm mindful, and then I'm gone. What happens there? I think I talked about that. Well, that's, you know, conditioned, right? We've trained ourselves to be deluded, to be restless, to... Uh, to to think a lot to space out so that's just a conditioned thing. I'm really more interested. Why does mindfulness arise again? At some point, right sooner or later, you're mindful again. How does that happen? We can't do that, right? I think I spoke about that. We can't make that happen. But noticing when it happens. And being grateful, joyful, glad, appreciative, whatever uh, seems appropriate, that actually is what is um, helpful in that state. Because moments of mindfulness condition successive moments of mindfulness. And especially samasati, the mindfulness when you know you're being mindful, where you actually can feel the training that's happening. The feedback loops that happening as we deepen in mindfulness. There's a saying I'm not sure who came up with it that enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident prone. It's like the more we're in this this stew of mindfulness and and dharma, then it's more likely that we'll wake up. And I love this um, the way it's fr- phrased here: how arisen mindfulness or any of the other factors comes to fulfillment by development. Really, can we notice in our practice that joy is actually filling our being, that contentment or tranquility or energy comes to fulfillment by development. And it kind of, again, is an invitation into the big picture of the path, that these are all things that we're developing as we practice and it's beneficial necessary for us to recognize and notice their presence and to nurture them to actually care about them and not you know diminish them or that's you know chula mindfulness mini mindfulness not good mindfulness i can't do this mindfulness but actually to really respect what's happening it can give us a lot of faith as we start to recognize that in our practice. I mean, here we are five weeks in to this retreat. And even though it might seem like at times you completely lose the plot, you are way different than you were those many weeks ago. I I see it all the time. And just, you know, someone said how to feel that mindfulness itself is inherently satisfying. To really know you're showing up and being present, know that, feel that, just the the sweetness of being fully alive in this moment for whatever's happening. And then lastly, um, the Four Noble Truths. And interesting that this list is in this list (laughs) because it's not something just to memorize. It's here as a practice, as a set of practices, not a philosophy, you know, it doesn't mean you're a card-carrying Buddhist, you, you know, pull it out every now and then and go, "Yeah, yeah, one, two, three, four, got that, put it back in the pocket. Don't help you if that's how you relate to it. They're practices, the four noble truths are ways in the moment to find freedom, in the moment to see where suffering is and how to come to the end of suffering. And so it's a little like the noticing of in the other foundations or like Vednu, we see where, how we get stuck, why we get stuck and the possibility of letting go moment to moment. So again, the, the text is the practitioner understands as it actually is, this is suffering and often in interviews, I'll, I'll just point that out to people when they're describing a difficult peri- experience. Did you recognize this as suffering? There's something profound. The mind and heart lets go a little and just says, yeah, this is really hard. My, my colleagues, friends, Sylvia Borstein, she'll just say when she's having a difficult experience, oh, sweetheart, this is really difficult, isn't it? And just kind of holds herself with that sense of warmth and kindness. And recognizing suffering is a doorway to compassion, to letting ourselves feel more intimately what's happening. So just to recognize this is suffering. And to see how we're creating our suffering. You know, the arising of suffering through clinging, the origin of suffering is craving, is tanha is wanting things to be other than they are, not being okay with the things, things just as they are. Sometimes as we tune to this, you see how the mind is just seeking relentlessly for another hit of pleasant, that the grasping is there on the grossest levels, but also on the most subtle levels. Just seeing that, this is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, seeing the craving causing suffering. And then the cessation of craving. Tempor- even if it's temporary. I spoke a bit last week, and I think Guy talked about it too, and, and uh, Greg. Temporary nibbana, those moments that we have where the mind lets go. And you can recognize the letting go, the peace, the calm, the spaciousness, the expansiveness the lack of stickiness, the free flow of experience. However you experience that, we need to recognize those moments. These are important moments. And then the last is the fourth um, noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path. Again, a very complex set of teachings in and of itself. But it said that being on retreat and practicing in this way, we are practicing... Each of, the found, each of the eightfold path. Wise understanding, we're hearing the teachings, we're putting them into practice, we're understanding them. Wise intention towards renunciation, uh, goodwill, and um, harmlessness. This is how we live here, again and again, training in that way. Speech, Wise speech, the best form, noble silence, the e- easiest way to stay out of trouble. A lot of harming through s- self and inner speech, but we're not expressing it outwards. So we're practicing that. Wise action, we're following the precepts as best we can. Wise livelihood, this is said to be the best form of livelihood. The renunciate, the, 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 the um, intensive practitioner livelihood retreat life. Wise effort. Again, what we're doing here, looking to purify the mind and heart. Wise mindfulness. I think we could check that one off. And wise concentration. Again, deepening that steadily over the days. We're practicing the whole of the Eightfold Path just by living and practicing here. So we put it all into practice again, it's, it's vast. This map is vast. And it can attune to the subtlest mind moment that you're having, can bring it into um, our experience. So in the big picture, the intent of the fourth foundation of mindfulness is to integrate the Buddha's teachings and understanding into our moment-to-moment experience. This is what we're doing here. And there's a real encouragement to bringing wisdom, investigation into our experience. We're not doing the lump-on-a-log passive practice. Oh, this is what's happening. Oh, I'm angry, or I'm tired, or I'm sleepy, or I'm irritated. It's not like, see what's happening here. What are the conditions that are creating this experience? How do I work skillfully with this? With this? So we bring everything to... to The experience, all of our wisdom, all of our compassion, all of our understanding. So it's a teaching about skillful means, a teaching about wise response. As we learn how to reduce and let go of the unwholesome, unskillful experiences, states of mind, when we use antidotes, we have more equanimity. We don't get so entangled. When we cultivate and strengthen the beautiful qualities, the factors of awakening or the Brahma Viharas, this is the field of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So you're doing it more than you think. You're actually doing it a lot of the time. It can just be helpful to realize that that's what you're doing that you're walking the Buddha's path, you're walking the Buddha's way as we practice here. And what's actually going on is there's a progression here, both through all of the four foundations, but within the four foundations, fourth foundation itself, which overlays and we use this way of seeing with the other foundations, with our awareness of the body in those practices with the awareness of Vedna, with the awareness of mind. So our foundation practices, breath, body, sounds, um, we start there. We can kind of connect. We can always come back to that. But what do we first encounter? What did we give one of the early talks on the hindrances? It's one of our initial experiences and is often still with us. The fourth foundation is how we work skillfully with that. Once the hindrances diminish a little, we can start to see more clearly, what do we see? The nature of mind and body, whether we see that through the lens of the five aggregates, or the six sense spaces. So we start to work with that. As we get clear about that, we don't get so identified, we're not so lost, we're not so caught, then the beautiful qualities, the seven factors get developed. Again, even as I say, they're they're linear, they're also interwoven. But just to see the power, the the beauty of this map, as as we really land in this present moment experience, really understanding mind and body in these different ways, naturally these beautiful qualities of, of energy and interest and calm and concentration develop. The mind that gets steadied in that way has that balance of mind because in the factors of awakening what we want to do is bring them into balance. Then it can penetrate to liberation. It has the capacity to know suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. So the whole kind of path is revealed right up to nibbana in this sequence of teachings. So it's just an amazing and broad map of practice and I know hearing it like this there's a lot of information if you lose track don't worry trust that you're doing it more than you might think perhaps a few things have become clear but just to kind of I know I always have to step back and I'm in awe of the Buddha's mind you know, he, did, he wasn't writing this down. He didn't have Wikipedia to go to and write, what was that thing I was thinking of the other day? And, you know, trying to, re- re- he didn't have a big relational database to kind of map this out. It's just in his mind and his practice, his understanding. Um, and then, of course, he finishes the sutta with this famous, famous set of teachings. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way as he has described for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected either final knowledge here and now, this full liberation, or if there's a trace of clinging, then non return, basically third stage enlightenment born into another realm. But then he pauses and he rethinks, let alone seven years practice the four foundations. Six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, one of two fruits could be expected, let alone one year. Seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, for half a month, two weeks, one of two fruits. Let alone half a month, bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected. Full awakening, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non return So it was with reference to this, it was said, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is what the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus were satisfied and and delighted in the Blessed One's words so let alone seven days. Even those of you who are here for only six weeks. I know it's just six days, but you've already been here five weeks, so let alone. We often joke that we'll put a sign out on the front, enlightenment guaranteed in seven days, if, and it's a big if, you know, you truly and fully and deeply and completely practice um, these foundations of mindfulness. But this is the direction this path and these practices go. The invitation, the teachings are there, the possibility is here right now. And just to have a sense again, the connection to the lineage, these words spoken 2,600 years ago, supported and practiced and passed on by countless generations of practitioners, of monks and nuns, lay men and lay women, to us here today, It just gives me a huge amount of faith and confidence in the Buddha's teachings because we see the fruit and the beauty for ourselves, even perhaps in moments, that this is what's possible for us. So I want to just finish with a a little excerpt from a a teaching I love called The Ballad of Liberation from the Khandas by Ajahn Mun. He uh, died in 1949. He was a very... Um, powerful and, and somewhat strict ascetic forest monk. But this teaching, it's kind of his liberation poem, is so evocative. When the heart sees its own decayings, it's released from darkness. It loses its taste for them and abandons its doubts. It stops searching for things within and without. Its attachments all fall away it leaves its loves and hates. Whatever weights it down, it can end its desires. Its sorrows all vanish, together with the weighty cares that made it moan. As if a shower of rain were to refresh the heart, the cool heart is realized by the heart itself. The heart is cool for it has no need to wander about looking at people. Knowing the mind source in the present It's unshakable and unconcerned with any good or evil, for they must pass away with all other impediments. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its own affairs. No expectations, no need to be entangled or troubled, no need to keep up its guard. Sitting or lying down, One thinks at the source mind, released. So let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. for your attention. Got time for walking. If you had a cup of that hot chocolate chai, you've probably got energy to stay up for the chanting, maybe even if you didn't. Get an early start on uposita day, which is tomorrow. Sit up